you know, I didn't think we'd make it to the third year anniversary of the lapse. It's not an easy gig running a podcast. It's lonely. The loneliest job I've ever worked, in fact. It's a sincere challenge of your self-discipline when you're by yourself in every way you can think of. And you have to have faith that even though you're giving away every ounce of work that you do, blood, sweat, cliches, somebody somewhere is going to love what you do enough to throw some change into your hat. It's a lot to ask. Those select few who've pledged to support this show are the reason you're even listening to this now. But now, with the start of Season 4, I want to be able to give you more. I've got some stuff in the works that I think you're going to love, but the only way that I can afford to possibly do it is if I have your support to make it. Consider a small monthly donation. Whatever's in your jeans, whatever is in the change jar that you don't touch, with your help, this can finally become more than just a critical hit, more than just an indie darling, with more than an episode a month. There are even bonuses in it for you too, because I believe in doing everything I can to make this show worth going through the effort to type in a URL. Because why on earth would you pause a podcast in the middle to type in a URL and give a stranger your money? Well, that address is patreon.com slash the laps. If you do indeed decide to pause this show, you'll be one of the few. Go to that URL, pledge your support. You can chat with me. You can find exclusive full-length episodes that aren't in this main feed. I hope to see you there, patreon.com slash the laps. Thank you, and please enjoy the show. With that said, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lap Storytelling Podcast, where we tell true stories gussied up. I'm your host, Kyle Jest, and today we have got a story from Lillian Fouts, which is one of those that I, I look at and I think one of these days somebody is going to adapt this into a movie. I think this is probably one of the longest episodes the Laps has ever, ever produced. I, I mean, there were years of life left in her story that we didn't even have a chance to touch on. We were talking for hours and I, she had to go, you know, I couldn't keep her any longer. Nevertheless, the story you are about to hear is the complete story. No cliffhangers. I'm calling this one Taken. See with your ears, this is The Lapse. Your mother doesn't love you anymore. Your mother doesn't want you anymore. My mom doesn't love me anymore? Smarter with me. I was really shocked. I couldn't believe it. But, you know, we didn't hear from her for a long time, and he was doing all this fun stuff with us. I mean, he was taking us to the fair, <laughs> giving us all the candy we wanted to eat. Hey, sweetheart. If you were to choose between us, who would you rather live with? Your mommy? Or your daddy? Daddy? Daddy's great. He had moved, so my mom didn't know where we were. Without telling her, he intended to take us, divorce her, and file for custody. One week, we were at church, and she showed up. And all I knew was she didn't want us anymore. We had these plans to go for a picnic afterwards, you know, and I was all excited about this picnic we were going to go on. My sister was, you know, a couple years younger. She's still really attached to our mom, you know, and she wanted to go back with mommy. That's when their father catches wind. But Rosie, Lily's younger sister, has to go potty. We'll talk about this after the kids go to the bathroom. So she took us into the women's restroom, and while we were in there, she said, girls, we've got to get out of here. My sister's like, yeah, let's go, you know, and my mom's going to get us back home. All I was thinking about was the picnic. 
and I made a, a real big scene. Somebody came into the restroom, and she's like, Is there a problem here? Cops didn't understand what was going on. They're like, well, if, you, if you've been served papers, you can't. I haven't been served papers yet. You know, these are my kids. They've been living with me. And he told me he was going to bring them back in two weeks. I never said that. I just said they'd be back. And then I found some letters. He was throwing them in the trash. I took them to my sister, and, and we were in our room, and I said... Look, mommy wrote us these letters, and she had this little package that she'd sent us. It had some little soaps, like duck-shaped soaps and stuff in there. Just simple little gifts. Do you think Daddy threw these out on accident? Their father wins custody. Early on, was like, we want to live with Daddy, you know, because Daddy's so much fun. I feel strange about the situation. I don't quite trust my dad, but I don't know why. Lily's sister starts to regress a little bit. She hadn't wet the bed in a long time. All of a sudden, she's starting to wet the bed. All of a sudden, she's starting to suck her thumb. We had weekend visits. I can't remember if it was one or two weekends a month. And a few weeks during the summer with our mom. There's abuse going on. There's neglect going on. So every time we had a visit, it was like, don't make us go back with him, mommy. (laughs) She's like, I can't. I would be breaking the law. I can't keep you. My sister was just crying every time. And my sister said, well, can't we just hide? So that's that's why she decided to take us. She called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which at that time was a very new organization. If a non-custodial parent runs off with a kid, what steps do you take to find them? She assumed that my mom was the left-behind parent and that the father had run away with us, right? So she's like, oh, we search computer databases and we put a flag on their social security number so if they apply for a job or go to a hospital... Yes, yes. Sorry to interrupt. Um, Yes, please. That would be very helpful. She never even had a parking ticket. I mean, nothing. A few days later, my mom has this list in hand, so she memorizes it. Everything not to do while you're on the run, right? While this was the kid's idea, this is not a game of hide-and-seek. It's going to be hard. She makes plans to go to Mexico. If they... they want to go back to their dad, back to their dad. They can go back to their dad. You have broken dad laws. If they want to keep running, she schedules a practice run. We started out flying down to the south. This is summertime. It's hot. It's humid. And we go on this long car trip from the airport in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to our friends up in northern Mississippi. She intentionally did not let us eat very much food at all, without supper, without breakfast. Tired, we're hot, we're thirsty. And that evening, we get to the place, all we want to do is just eat something and sleep. She says, girls, we need to talk about something. 
you know, how hard it's been on this trip, how you've been hot and hungry. And if we go on the run, we won't get to see the pets anymore. You might not see grandma and grandpa for a really long time. You know, we might have days like this where you won't get enough to eat that day or, you know, it's just going to be hard if we do this. But you've been asking me to keep you and not make you go back with your daddy. She was completely upfront from day one. She said, if you ever change your mind, you just say the word. Mom is the kids for two weeks during the summer. Every day, every tick of the calendar, she wonders if her girls might still change their mind. But they don't. And time's up. Okay, girls, we need to change our names. My sister and my birth names were really distinctive, unusual names. We were not happy about this. I mean, I liked my birth name. Rosie liked her birth name. But when she explained it, we kind of reluctantly agreed. You know, I was thinking about Christina because I'd always liked the name Christina. My sister and I were thinking about it, and she's like, well, how about flower names? What do you think of Lily and Rosie? And I just instantly loved She's like, I want to be Lily. And Rosie's like, I want to be Rosie. We ended up in El Paso in this Catholic mission house. My mom had run out of money, and so they basically took us in. She was, she basically ended up in this prostitution place. She was very young and innocent at that point, and they were like, uh, lady, you don't belong here. Let me call, and I'll find somebody to, you know, so that's how we ended up there. The bishop called my mom into his office, and he said, I'm, I'm supposed to help, help you go, go to Mexico. Mexico. She hadn't told anybody. How did you know? I had a dream. A woman and her two girls arrived at the mission house. We were playing with her name, from English to Spanish, Spanish to English. And in Spanish, it was Amigo. In English, it was friend. When you came and you introduced yourself as wrote a friend, I knew that woman was you. I am supposed to help you go to Mexico. Whether a dream or a higher power or merely the bishop's powers of observation. He introduces us to this lady who has an orphanage that she's running in Juarez across the border. She asks my mom, so why do you want to go to Mexico? My mom just said, that's where God wants me. She goes to the counter, talks to this guy in rapid-fire Spanish, which at that point, uh, you know, we didn't understand. Turned around and gave my mom a piece of paper. She's like, here, sign this. She goes back, and, you know, the guy does some other stuff. Okay, you're done. Wow, what did, what did you tell him? I just told him that God told you to go to Mexico. We hated it at first. We were just overwhelmed. We're people, you know, we like our privacy and 
We've got crowds of people staring at us. The first time going to the marketplace when we got down there, fish and meat hanging from hooks and, you know, we're vegetarians. We go past this fish stand and I smell the, the raw fish and <laughs> I'm like trying to find a place to inhale where I don't have to smell this fish, right? And I turn around and there's this lifeless pig's head hanging from a hook staring at me. I just rolled around and threw up right there in the marketplace. Everybody, of course, is staring at me. I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Within a few months, we were speaking the language. Rosie and I picked it up just playing with kids. I mean, you just go out in the street and just play with kids and... They were just shocked that we didn't have more brothers and sisters like everybody else. My mom had to work a little harder at it. I mean, she she would go to the um, plaza with a notebook and just ask people, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that? Write words down. After we'd been there for a couple of months, she's like, we're not leaving Mexico till I can speak Spanish. We were still homeschooled, which is probably for the best because that gave us some continuity in an otherwise very mobile life. And of course, homeschooling is an extremely unusual thing in Mexico. Late 80s, early 90s, kids either go to school or they don't go to school and they're working. So when they heard we didn't go to school, it was like, oh my goodness, can you read? Despite their circumstances, technically being on the run, these are formative years. And it actually has been years. The girls are growing up. We spoke Spanish without an accent because we were kids. We actually had a lot of resentment toward Americans because at that point, most of our experience with Americans was these tourists who come down with a superior attitude, complaining about things they don't even understand about Mexico. If you don't like it, go home. I was just embarrassed by the way most tourists came down and acted. We were Mexican. After five years in Mexico, my mom was beginning to feel very isolated. The stress of of being on the run and not having people from her own culture to communicate with just started worrying on her. And she just, I don't know, she was just having a really hard time. I myself wished I was not American because I didn't want to be associated with those people. My mom saw this going on. She's like, you know, beginning to resent Americans. High school's around the corner and college right after that. And we need opportunity for education and higher education. And much to my dismay and my sister's dismay, she made the unilateral decision to take us back to the States. With some negotiation... Rhoda meets a fellow who happens to look just enough like the girls to pass for their father. The next time he trips down to Mexico, the whole happy family hops into his car. We're coming toward the border, kind of coming down the hill because you kind of go over this bridge and you're coming down the hill to the checkpoint. They were checking everybody's ID. You know, I felt really Mexican at that point, so it's like, what if they can tell that... As they roll up to the window, the girls stare at their feet. Good morning. He looks in the car, looks at all four of us. You all American citizens? 
my mom and this guy. So, yes. I'm sitting in the back. Look American. Any fruit, vegetables, or animals in your vehicle? Well, we've got some some fruit and some avocados here. It's like, well, I'm sorry, sorry I can't I'm let you take, take that, that across the border. Yeah. So they handed that over to him. Okay, folks. You have a good day. I felt so guilty even though, you know, it's like, I am an American. This is my country, but I don't feel like it anymore. It's been a long time since they've been home. You can call it home. They wind up in Albuquerque, and Rhonda is still on the FBI's radar. She gets a driver's license. If she uses her social security number, they'll be done. Mom found a live-in caregiving job for this elderly couple. And it was perfect because she was an RN. They agreed to pay her on a cash basis. My sister and I were going through a correspondence homeschool program at this point. I was in ninth grade. So we lived with this elderly couple while my mom took care of them. I was sitting down at my desk, working on some biology homework. I see this shadow go across the window in front of me, and it's about the time for the mailman to come, so I figure the mailman's coming to deliver the mail. Because it was close to my birthday, so I thought, you know, maybe somebody sent me a card or something. So I ran out there to see if there was anything for me. I almost reached the door, and there's a loud knock. Maybe they have a package to deliver or something. Hello. It's not the mailman. Can I speak to Rhoda Friend, please? Uh, yeah, just a second. It's this freaking gigantic police officer. I ran into the dining room where my mom was helping my sister with her schoolwork. And I said, the police! She kind of makes a motion to the back door. My sister and I vaulted across the backyard and ran up the street. We're running up the street, trying to put as much distance from ourselves and the cops as we can. Wrote a friend, we've received a tip that suggests that you have failed to return your daughter to their father's custody. Is that true? My mom starts thinking, she's like, okay, he called me Rhoda. He's calling me by my alias. He doesn't know everything. Why would you even want to arrest Rhoda me? Rhoda strings the officer along. What's happening. I'm so then they discover that my sister and I are not there. They throw handcuffs on her, throw her in the back of the car, and then they start combing the streets, looking through the neighborhood for us. Rhoda sits and waits and hopes. She counts the cars as more and more backup continues to arrive. She manages to count 13 before she really starts to fidget. She starts fidgeting with her hands and, and sliding the cuffs up and down her wrists. And she's she has really small hands. She realizes, I can get out of this thing. She slips her hand out of the handcuff. It's August, it's hot. They left the window partially down. She's able to open the door and get out. Rhoda knows her time is limited. Ducking low, she slips into the yard next door. Her neighbor tends to her garden. Psst. Trisha. Can I use your phone? The neighbor's like working in the flower garden, trying to pretend like nothing unusual is happening, and she's like, yeah, go inside. 
It was a rotary phone, actually, so it took her a while to dial. By this point, we had confided in some friends and told them about our situation, and they were kind of on our side, and our friend picks up. Hello? The police have shown up. The girls have... I'm not sure where they are, but can you please go find them? Make sure they're safe. At that point, she hears banging and footsteps stomping outside the door, and the cops have realized that she's gotten away. Now they're really mad. So they put three sets of handcuffs on her now. So her elbows are back behind her back and they cinch it up as tight as they can. I want to talk to my attorney. I'm not saying anything to you guys. You'll get your right to an attorney when you're under arrest. Till then, sit tight. You got your kids to find. I haven't been arrested. I have three sets of handcuffs on. If I'm not arrested, what am I? <sighs> Who's your attorney? Leon Taylor. Did you say Leon Taylor? Yeah. Like magic. The cops let her go. We didn't even realize that Leon Taylor had this reputation. Celebrity lawyer in the 80s and 90s, known for his tacky suits, colorful personality, for plastering his face across billboards and TV ads in Albuquerque. His specialty was like getting people off on technicalities because of police mistakes. We just went to this, like, free consultation. Really lucky. Nevertheless, at that point, the Albuquerque police knew where we were, so if more information did come in, we were going to be in trouble. You know that friend she called? Paul, Eric, and Monica. We went hiking with them all the time. So that's where they went to look for us, and that's where we were. We decided to stay in Albuquerque, but we changed our names again and basically cut off communication with everybody except Paul and these friends. And we kind of had the support system. We had Paul, we had Eric and Monica. I don't know how we would have survived without their help. Life was hard at that point. The Friday before Mother's Day, 1994, we were getting ready to go over to Paul's house We were going to take some food over. We were going to watch this movie. We were getting ready to get into Paul's car. And all of a sudden, these cars drive in from every direction and lock us in. Like a deer surrounded by headlights. Nobody moved. And a man got out of each car. Paul got out, went over and talked to him. I looked over and noticed one of them had a badge on his belt. We had started making calls with my biological father, trying to resolve the situation, and we had this magazine advertisement for an untraceable line that you could call to communicate with other people and not be traced. Except it was traceable. It was the FBI. My mom spent several months in jail. She was sentenced to a year, but she got out on good time after about five months. They forced us to go back with our father. It was really weird seeing him again. I mean, 
what if my memories are wrong and he's not so bad? For some reason, physically, he never abused me. It was always my sister. I mean, the verbal and emotional abuse was for everybody, but physical abuse was always aimed at her. Turns out, he's still controlling and abusive and plays mind games and everything just like I remembered. He had been recording all of our telephone conversations, so we had, like, no privacy. So we couldn't really talk. She would call us, you know, she was allowed to call us. We kind of made this arrangement where she would call. We found the number of a public phone and gave that to her. We would just have a really brief, hi, how are you? I'm doing fine, you know. Run over to the other phone where she would call and we would have a real conversation. One of these times when that happened, he was home from work. We ran over to the other phone like we always did and he followed us over there. He stood by the phone until it rang, picked it up. My sister was facing him with her bicycle. She's like, let me talk to my mom. Rosie, let's just go. He's not going to give up. We went to pull away, and he grabbed her bicycle bar handle so she couldn't pull back. So then she's like pounding on his hand with her fist, trying to get him to let go of her bicycle. Then he reached up and slapped her really hard across the face. And then he gloats on the phone to my mom. I just hit your daughter. There was this half cup full of Pepsi sitting on the sidewalk. She picked it up and yanked the bike back and we rode off. We don't feel happy or safe in this environment. We want to live with our mom. Aren't we old enough to make that decision now? My sister and I decided to go get an attorney. After school one day, we went to an attorney and we said, Hey, this is what's going on. We were 13 and 15. He said, Well, I can't represent you, but I'll find somebody who can. Sure enough, he found another attorney who agreed to represent us pro bono. Rosie and I, what we were saying started going into the court record, so things happened real fast at that point. We had a settlement conference, and the judge agreed to let us go back and live with our mom again. When I turned 19, you know, every time I heard anything from him, I would just literally get a headache. And at that point, I said, please don't contact me anymore. I haven't been in touch with him for, gosh, close to 20 years now. He has never apologized for anything he's done. Um, I think it would be nice if he did, but, but I have a great stepdad. Paul and my mom got married the next year after all that happened, and um, and he's been like a true father to me, and he is an amazing guy. So I I have a father figure in my life and somebody who has really looked after my well-being, provided for me. 
I talked to somebody at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and uh, the FBI agent, what their impression of my father was. Most parents, when their kids are found, they're just overwhelmed with joy and they're super excited. She's like, all I got out of him was... It was Friday that we got caught. He showed up on Tuesday to pick us up. They all hated my father. It wasn't about finding us. It was about hurting her. That story again was shared by Lillianne Fouts. Lily is currently writing a book about her experiences. It's titled Seven Years Running, and she's seeking a publisher for that book. If you'd like to read it, there's a sample chapter on her site right now, lilyandfouts.com, which chronicles even more of their escape from the police in Albuquerque, New Mexico. If you want to get in touch with her, you can reach her through there as well, lilyandfouts.com. I'll say it once more, The Lapse is now funding its fourth season of the show. You can ensure ongoing releases as the show grows into its biggest and best year yet with a teeny monthly donation. Patreon.com slash The Lapse. You can chat with me there. I personally respond to all of my patrons. I love you guys. Uh, speaking of which, I want to give a huge thank you to Daryl Kane, Elsie Green, Cindy Crines, Matthew Gibson, David McCobb, Bren McDonald, Haley Burroughs, David Gaddy, Jennifer Cherney, Rob Holcomb, Patrick Freeburn, and Mary Anna Gordon. You are very much a big part of the reason that this show still exists. Lastly, if you have a story to share, if you want to talk, I'm listening. You can reach me at storiesatthelapse.org, and you can also follow me for updates on the show. That's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The Lapse Podcast. My name is Kyle Jest, and this was The Lapse. Thank you so much for listening.